Yes, please. Are you saying what somebody is gay? Is this a trick question? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I have a comment, I guess. It seems like, I mean, where life is, in, is terminal. Mm-hmm. And so I we hear so many stories of people who are very close to death who really kind of get it. Like, finally see the fragility of life are filled with gratitude. And it makes me wonder if the problem is that we live so long that we never really quite believe that we're going to go until we get sick. And that part of it is just get caught up in this 68 years of thinking that we're delivered I don't think it's the time. I think it's the ignorance. You know, because none of us know from one minute to the next how long we're going to live. You know. I mean, we hear stories all the time of somebody who's healthy one minute and they're dead the next. And there's absolutely like, you know, strange things happen. Weird things happen. You know. So it's not the time. It's the fact that we don't believe it's going to happen to us. We, we imagine that it's going to happen to us when we're ready for it, when we're old, after we've retired, when we're 95, you know. And, you know, we have no idea. So it's, it's the lack of, of, of taking this as some kind of a reality, that this is actually inevitable. It's something that we will, hap- will happen to us. And we have no idea when it's going to happen. Useful, it's a useful contemplation to think, you know, that I will die. I am not beyond that. And what does that do to one's priorities? I don't know. In, the, in one of the basic reflections that we contemplate in the monastery is, is, is the five subjects for frequent recollection, and one of them is that I am the nature to age I have not gone beyond aging I am the nature to sicken I have not gone beyond sickness I am the nature to die I have not gone beyond dying everything that is beloved and pleasing to me I will be separated from and so when we lose things or things shift or you know the economy is going nuts or you know it looks like you know whatever we get so scared, but we forget that there's going to be a time where we're going to lose everything and everyone. You know, that comes with the territory. When you're born, that comes with the territory. So, you know, I think people are interested in a feel-good practice but this kind of practice really focuses on something else, which is actually, where does the heart open up to, to that which is beyond death? You know, where is the joy that is actually there, that is able to hold, so that death is not a horrible, morbid thing to contemplate, but something that the body ends up, we can recognize that, when we can relax around that, when we feel at peace with our life, and our death. I mean, I think that's what Max's joy was. Is, is, is that when he really completely got it, that he was dying, 
There was something in him that was totally surrendered to living in a way that had never been before. You know, and in him, he was such a genius. It was, I mean, such an unbelievable genius. You could see that the power of his intellect would be really strong. But then what came was the power of his heart was just incredibly strong. So we contemplate death not so that we get stuck about dying, but so that our minds can relax into what doesn't die. And then, when we understand what doesn't die, there is nothing in the world that is more to feel grateful for than that. What is it that doesn't die? Well, that's probably for each to ask ourselves, isn't it? I mean, certainly we know that our body passes and our feelings change and our thoughts and our memories and our perception and sense consciousness changes. So none of that is part of that. So what is beyond that? What doesn't die? No. (laughs) It's worthwhile asking. Yes. I, I will offer that when one understands death, one understands life. The two people you described, the woman with the oxygen and the man with three weeks, they live in two realities. We live in these physical bodies we identify with this. When we experience death, we see that there is this and this, not one or the other. So how can we experience death and be surrendered to life now? I appreciate that you suggested that each of us consider that. Mm-hmm. I've experienced that there's a quality of energy that becomes available from one's in crisis that can really cut through um, just every day. Um, um, Distraction and dilution. And um, seem to make available um, the focus and the, um, the force to experience life in a more profound way, in a, in a way that, um, maybe, maybe in a more authentic way. Um, 
And to also, uh, at that point, uh, to have available resources that didn't seem to be available in everyday waking consciousness. Um, but then I've experienced, when that crisis passes, that it feels like those those doors in some ways, or those availabilities, seem to dissolve. And the quality of everyday, that really normal reality seems to kind of flood back in. And it's like the awareness of that, the memory of that is still there, what it feels like. Um, yet at the same time, you know, I find that it's just a memory. And to um, to live in that state that I've only experienced, most of the time I've only experienced when there is a crisis, um, you know, it's, it's frustrating how to maintain that when there isn't a crisis. So I wonder if you could talk about that. I mean, for me, that's what the meditation practice and training is about, is to be able to understand these different kinds of veils that occlude our capacity to be absolutely present and clear and totally responsive to the situation. Okay? And, um, but you're right. There's certain situations that elicit that because of the adrenaline, the urgency, the what's at stake. Whereas when everything feels safe and comfortable and normal, that doesn't, you don't bring those kinds of, of heightened states of, of awareness to that present moment. And so what, what's needed is to learn how to be utterly awake and aware without requiring a crisis. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, and I can see in my own life and I can see living in a monastery, there's times where that feels more present and alive in times when it doesn't. So it's not like we can... There's no way we can legalize enlightenment. <laughs> yeah. We have to work with where we're at and see whatever kind of habits or patterns that we are acting from and move towards wholesome and move away towards unwholesome and begin to get a sense of what are the filters that are keeping us from being completely present right here in the moment. Without having a crisis, kind of. Right. So, you know, most of us are used to kind of, you know, crisis navigation as a, as a, as a, as a, as a path, you know? And that's not great for your adrenals, you know? And so, like, just the, notice the difference of what it was like to stand tonight before we sat and what happened to your attention. Now, it's not a crisis, but your body would have felt different in the end of that meditation than it did at the beginning, okay? And there's times when we're standing for a few minutes at a time. You know, it doesn't have to be as a part of the group to be able to determine this is a time to relax, to connect, to energize, and to feel what's present. 
Okay. It requires the intention to do that and a perspective, the values, that that actually has some use. But, you know, part of the reason why it's really helpful that groups of people like this meet together is so that you can support each other in creating contexts where, you know, you can be quiet, you can discuss the Dhamma, you can reflect on teachings together, and you can talk about those things that are alive in your life, of where you're numbing out, where you're waking up, and what are those differences? Why is this whole zone a numb-out zone? And why is this whole zone a zone where you feel really awake? And can you bring the awake zone into the numb zone? Where are the places where you check out? You know, And is there a pattern about that? So it's like a science, or it's a combination of a science and an art form. You know, It's not connect the dots. It's like an intuition, like following the steps of the yeti, you know? Where you can never see the yeti, you just see the tracks. And, and, and following that and letting your body open and relax and respond and, and getting a sense of where there's more aliveness and where there's more dullness and where there's more numbness and, and staying with the aliveness and being very attentive when it's shutting down and becoming numb. And, you know, being careful not to do things that support that. So we have all kinds of habits and stories in our heads about how it's supposed to be, but when we actually listen in our body to what happens with some of these stories, it's a nightmare. You know, various states of dissociation or numbness or disconnection or all the kinds of it. So if we let that be our register, we know, well, those are not thoughts and patterns and habits to follow. Just don't do that. When we feel relaxed and alive and energized and present and awake... Well, this is the stuff to listen to, to believe in, to follow, to make more of, to pay attention to. So that, for me, is like my signaling of how I make choices and how I move and, you know, what helps me do this. I went to the monastery in 1989. It has been a rich and varied path. I've never regretted it. And, you know, it felt like when I, when I went to the monastery, it felt a little bit like somebody took me by the scruff of my neck and stuck me in the monastery and said, you stay there until I give you instructions to do something different. You know? It, it, it didn't feel like it was a volitional process, it felt like I was, something else was moving me, you know. And yet, there's been a lot of challenge in that, because, you know, uh, um, most religions have within them huge discrepancies between where we're at contemporary in terms of our value structures and where the traditions have emerged from, and Buddhism is no exception. So, you know, there was a lot of challenge to for the nuns to find their ground and to develop as a community and to learn to live together and all of the rest of that. But that challenge generated tremendous um, fruit, tremendous uh, insight. And, you know, what, what I feel like I need to do right now is write about some of all of this. 
you know, my life story and what brought me to the monastery and what the journey in the monastery has been. And, and then in the last number of years, there was we came up against a, another obstacle because as the nuns were getting more confident, it was actually causing a crisis. Because, the um, you know, before we were confident, um, we were a little bit all over the place. You know, we were at each other's throats or we were, you know, pulling carpets underneath each other's feet. We'd betray each other. You know, it was just not very lovely. But when we were like that, we weren't very threatening. <laughs> and when we were able to hold our own group process and stay with each other and consolidate with each other, then we became a force to reckon with, and the dynamics changed quite considerably. And so we were able to articulate the dilemma that we were in, which is, is that there was none of us, every single one of us was grateful for the opportunity to be a nun, and yet we were wrestling with things that felt like they were actually not at all helpful. In fact, they were quite the opposite. And so we were wanting to move out of the stuff that didn't work. And so, you know, the last couple of years was quite um, striking what happened. Because as the nuns became cohesive, the monks um, basically retrenched into a kind of patriarchal um, stronghold. And, you know, very effectively said, you know, it's, it's, we make the rules and, and, and if you don't like it, there's the door. And so, um, in the last couple of years, more than half of the nuns either left or disrobed, and a few nuns came to the United States, and I'm one of them. And so, you know, I came to the United States with the with the interest to live as a nun and to see what would happen in the faith that it was possible to live with the Buddha's essential teachings and not have to do things that I knew were harmful. So I had that conviction. But I didn't have a clue how to do it. <laughs> I mean, I know how to live as a nun, but this is slightly bigger. You know, this is not just me. So I lived in Colorado for um, a few years, and but I was doing too much. You know, I was still decompressing from what I came out of and trying to figure out how to make this whole big, huge thing happen. And, you know, it's too much. So I feel now I need to scale down and, and do things a little bit you know, one step at a time. And right now, maybe what would be good is for me just to write about my life story and the journey and what I've been through and what my experience with the nuns community is and what my sense is of what is needed now and see if the other people who feel interested in this will come and join because it's not something one person can do. I mean, I've never been one person. There's always been other people around supporting. But what I need is a team of peers who feel resonant with this they feel that they want to help make it happen. So, but what stays the same is the practice, you know. So even though the landscape changes, or I'm in the monastery, I'm out of the monastery, I'm on my own, you know. I'm on the road. I don't know if I'm going to have a place to stay. You know, I don't know if I'm going to have some food. The practice is the same, which is to be present with what's arising, to see how I'm reacting to it, and to respond both to help support balance and help to relax into this, this, what's there before things are born and after things die, you know, to rest in that. Does that answer your question? Yeah.
just had that one. So my plan now is to go back to Colorado. The community there have been organizing to create a more support for me there. And the hermitage that I was in before has been renovated, and it, the, we're at the last finishing touches of the, the renovation. And, you know, hopefully I'll spend more time writing and um, and stay tuned. You know, if people are wanting updates in the, the, life, the life of the nun, then the good thing to do is to sign up for the Awakening Truth email list and you get updates and blogs about the latest installment <laughs> of the drama. <laughs> the next chapter... <laughs> Or no drama, you know. You know, the joy of how things are coming together. But you're right, there are elements about this which are universal and every human being has to navigate this. And, you know, it's it's just you know, it's part of the human territory. Navigating uncertainty, taking risks, trying to figure out the resources that one has to work from, what one needs to be doing clarifying priorities, navigating tasks that need to be done even if they're not a a high-end priority list. This is all very much what everyone has to deal with. And doing that all the while, you know, we're in a world that is a little bit nuts, you know, with stuff that's going on right now that has really quite enormous ramifications. behave like people, whether we're lay people or we're monastics. And I think one of the tragedies of a monastic community is the way that it can unconsciously undermine a lay community. So that you've got an A team and a C team. And I think any time anybody is undermining their practice, that is tragic. People need to practice with as much diligence and conviction with whatever they have and wherever they're at. And that's what we all need to do. I can speak at length about the values of a monastic life, but there are not very many people who actually manage to live as a monastic for long periods of time. Okay? What I think is missing in the West is not that everybody needs to become monastics, but I think that the, the, the enormous success of the lay communities has been at, without enough exposure to monastics to know the value of staying in relationship with them. 
And so, you know, what I feel is needed is, is what I'm talking about is the many-fold assembly. In the Buddhist time, you see the word sangha, which now is a word that when two people meet together, it's a sangha. In the Buddhist term, the sangha was meant for the monastic sangha. And the assembly was meant for the communities of monastic and lay people together. Well, we're now in a postmodern era where binary systems like male and female no longer work because you've got people who do not identify with either. So we can't have a fourfold assembly anymore because the number doesn't work. So if we have a manyfold assembly, then that covers the ground. All genders are welcome. And all precept levels are welcome because, you see, after the time of the Buddha, we now have another precept form, which is a priest. These are people who are not monastics because they are not celibate, but they have higher commitments to live a contemplative life than what is normally thought of as in, a, as in, a, as in an ordinary lay life. So the manifold assembly covers all ground. And what I feel is needed is to return to the Buddha's intention that the manifold assembly was the most stable configuration to maximize the potential for awakening for the people for all of the different aspects of that assembly. Now, as a monastic, I absolutely cannot survive independent of a lay support. There is no way that I can do that. Okay? Whether the lay community can survive without monastics is a question. But a monastic, the way I live, there is no way that I can live without support from the lay community. Okay? But what saddens me is this incredible, rich field of what happens when the two are relating to each other in a way which is mutually supportive is something which is so unfamiliar. You know? It's so unknown, unfamiliar. People don't know how rich it is and how nourishing it can be and how supportive it can be to practice. You know? And that's sad. You know, so I'm not advocating that everyone become monastics. That would be a disaster. You know, a monastic life is suitable for a few. But what I do feel is needed is to have the, the many-fold assembly begin to start taking shape where the monastics are seen and, uh, and, and their presence is felt and what they have to offer is then part of what informs how this whole thing is operating. Do you think that that exists anywhere in the world in a, in a healthy way, that kind of manifold assembly? There's certainly monastic communities that are healthy and, uh, you know, we've got some up shoots that are emerging here. And, um, you know, I haven't yet been to Shravasti Abbey to see how they're operating, or I haven't yet been to Shasta Abbey to see how they're operating. You know, the Saranaloka Foundation are interested in creating a monastery. And, you know, the vision that I have is similar, uh-huh. you know, is to create a monastery. But all of these things require um, organization and infrastructure and, you know, people who really feel that it's important to make it happen. So I think it is happening. I mean, certainly the years that I lived in England, there was tremendous richness that came from the interaction with that. You know, my my point is this is that there's some kind of 
stuckness in a in a traditional definition of things which is no longer congruent with our contemporary values mm-hmm. which means that there's a in order to be part of that you have to accept something which i know is harmful mm-hmm. and there's something weird about going into a tradition that's designed to to understand suffering to un, to be released from suffering yeah. and to pick up practices or authority structures or power dynamics that cause suffering. I love this. <laughs> this conversation. And I'm watching and seeing how the monastic community can be uh, an incarnate path for individuals who serve in that role to express that particular identity with devotion and how that then dances with the lay community so that the lay community has that always, oh yes, yeah, thank you, oh I remember, oh yes, and it's always the encouragement to the lay community to incorporate that into the self in the day and the life in the busy of the street. And that gives grist for the monastic community to have purpose and function and involvement and sharing all of that beauty, and it, it then expands in the lay community. It's just such a beautiful wedding and blending. You don't isolate one from the other, is what I hear you talking about, and I'm totally excited. So the big vision of Awakening Truth is to have, like, a Dhamma village where you have monastics and lay people and people who are in eight precepts, and you've got families and kids, and you've got a, like a, a senior center, and you've got a hospice, where you've got all cycles of life that are there, and that's part of what we do. That's our next step. We must go there right now. <laughs> Does such a thing exist anyway? The city of 10,000 Buddhas... Uh, up in Ukiah, they've got monastics and lay people living there and universities and schools. I don't know if they've got a senior center and a hospice there. I don't know. Yeah. But that, that is the vision of awakening truth. That's the vision. And so I realize, as one solitary nun, that I have to wait until there are other peers joining me until we can move forward with next steps. Because I, as a solitary nun, cannot do that by myself. I just said the same thing to the National Bioregional Listserv Group and there were so many comments that came back where I said, I feel like I'm just waiting for you. There were so many comments that parents said, yeah, me too. Yeah, how do we do this? Yeah. So I know that I can talk about it and write about it and talk about the importance of it and hopefully my life is in some way an embodiment of the beauty of it. And it's up to all of us to see if this is going to happen or not, you know?
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.